Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify or whichever platform you get your podcasts on, as it really helps us. If you'd like to listen to any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. This week, we're very pleased to be joined by Mick O'Reilly. Mick's autobiography, From Lucifer to Lazarus, A Life on the Left, has just been published by the Lilliput Press and is available from all good bookstores and online. Mick, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, first, I think we should really ask you, because it's a, it's a really interesting book. We both got a copy of it and had a read of it, and I really enjoyed it. But what got you first interested in socialism? When did you first develop your, your class consciousness? Well, that's a that's a that's a very interesting question. I'll I'll do my best to answer it. Uh, it has two parts. One is a sort of um, an intellectual or curiosity about about reading, which happened to me uh, in my teens when I started to work in a company called Little and Nolans. But the other is an earlier thing, which I think is not intellectual but instinctive. And what I mean by that is this. There's a story in the book about my communion. I was bought a crombie coat and a blue serge suit, uh, which was bought in, in uh, Francis Street Market. And I remember going to the church with one of my pals from beside me, and he had no coat. And there are no words for this, because I wouldn't have had the words, but I had a feeling that the coat kindled uh, some kind of difference be- between us and I got angry at having the coat. I took her off and uh, hid it uh, in a garden in Tomond Road and l- later I found the coat because <laughs> I can still see a picture of my mother's face because she would have went up to see us march up from the school. It was in Ballyfern, march up from the school. So I think that, I wouldn't call that socialism but I would call it a kind of an instinct for fairness or justice and a lot of children I think have and maybe it's not there with them because of the particular world that they go into and the values that they have to assume. And that's part of it. The other part of it uh, is something that happened to me when I went to work. I'd worked in a, in a lot of places and I remember I was sacked. Uh, I worked in a place called Howard's. They used to manufacture uh, women's clothes and I was a Hoffman professor. 
There were only three men that worked there, and there was a payment by result system. Anyway, the long story short, there was a bus strike that there often was in Dublin in, in, in those days. It would have been the air, probably about 1960, 61. Anyway, my sister used to give me a lift home on, on her scooter, and uh, he told me I had to work overtime, and I told him I couldn't, but I could come in early the next morning. And there and then he just sacked me. And, uh, you know, when you know, I, was, I was only 14, 14 or 15, and I was absolutely outraged at his power over me. And I, I got interested in trade unionism, actually, from that. And eventually I went to work in a place called Lincoln and Nolan's. And I had worked in a lot of other places in between 14 and 16. You had to be six, you had to start there at your 16, apparently. And it was the 21st of October, 1962. It was half past one of the day. I went in and I was interviewed by a man called Tom Dent, who was the foreman. He gave me the job. I was to start in the stores. And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, go over there and see Billy Wheatley. He's the shop steward. And he'll fix you up with a union card. And at the same time in that, in that factory, there was a small group of people. Now, say in Lincoln and Nolan's, I would say there was four or 500 people working. It would have been probably less than a dozen people. They used to say the rosary at half past one of the day. And uh, <laughs> I went over to Billy Wheatley and I told him I wanted to join the union. He came to the farm and he started talking to me. And he said to me, You don't mind them down there. He said, They're praying for overtime. And he said, You join the union and we get you time and a half for it. And I, 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 I just knew he had said something. Now, Ireland was a very religious place at that time. And I just knew he had said something profound to me. And it went into my computer. And I went over it again and again and again. And it may be what he was saying to me. If you want to change the world, you combine with other people here. You don't ask for somebody, some sky god, uh, to do something by, by praying for them. Now, if I'd have said that to Billy Wheatley, he'd have laughed at me. He, I don't think he would have had that kind of meaning to it. But that's the meaning I eventually figured out of what, of what he was saying to me. And so it made a powerful uh, impact on me. And I remember in the factory, because they used to sell the United Irishman, and it's the first time I came across the magazine, the Irish Socialist. Used to, it used to be in the factory. I wouldn't say that nobody sold it, but you'd see odd copies of it lying around the place. And of course, everybody read every paper. You'd have the Irish Times, the Press, and the Independent. And you could read all the papers because they were all shared around the plant. And, you know, I, I kind of got interested in trade unionism for, 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 for that. And I remember going to my first union meeting. It was, a, it was an increase, a national increase of 12%. I had worked with all these men, they were, they were working there. And we went down, the meeting started, I think, at half past seven in the old Liberty Hall. And uh, I seen all these guys, and they had what you what they used to call Sunday suits on them. You know, they were shaved, they were dressed, they were whatever. And what amazed me about it was they were so articulate. In relation, I don't remember all the arguments that they made. But they were able to stand up and speak and speak. Uh, and the people on the platform spoke. And I remember thinking to myself, I'd love to get involved in this. This is really kind of an interesting thing. I got, I got interested in trade unionism from that. I don't know if that, if that answers the uh, question. Yeah, Mick, can you tell us something about the kind of political and social climate in Dublin in those days? Because, you know, we think back to the 50s and 60s and think of it as a time of, uh, on the one hand, very conservative politics, very strong Catholic church, very high immigration 
uh, housing shortage. Uh, what was it like that, or was it you know was it more interesting than that? Well, it was certainly like that, but like in any society where there's a dominant view like that, there are also other views. There are also dissenting views, however small those dissenting views might be. And one of the things that got me interested in communism was I went to see a cowboy picture called Vera Cruz, and Bert Lancaster was in it, and I, I he played a he played a kind of a group to to to, to Gary Cooper was in it. Anyway, I became fascinated with Portland Castle. And I used to try and go see all these films. And I remember he'd done a thing on the BBC called The War in the East. And it was about the Soviet Union. He narrated the thing. It was, it was a documentary. And I looked at it. I, it, was, it, was about the, it was about the Soviet Union's role in the Second World War. Now, if you were rare in Dublin at that time, you would think, Kind of the Americans and the British won the war, or that maybe the eloquence of Winston Churchill's speeches had absolutely flattened the German army. <laughs> when I when I seen this film, it absolutely stuck with me. And Bert Lancaster read out one fact that I have never forgotten. He said, "Out of every five German soldiers killed, the Red Army killed four of them." I have never forgotten that fact. And any amount of propaganda that I was surrounded by or seen, uh, I was able to see, to, to, to find out in the Dublin that I lived in, there's a novel or a spin going on here. And so that had a big kind of impact on me. Now, that's a very peculiar way to, to come to a sense of world history, but that's, that's, that made a, a kind of an impact on me. Uh, and to this day, I think that, you know, you see the celebrations, if you call the word celebration, you see the, the various things that are done to commemorate the, the Second World War and the, the D-Day landings and all like that. And the Russians, even now, are largely excluded from all these events, which I think is absolutely shocking. Yeah, it's interesting as well, though, Mick, you mentioned like, things like the United Irishman and things like that. And in those days, you tended to see a lot of this people going into radical politics from kind of the Irish Republican movement. Was it was that something that was common to you or something that you saw? No, it, it, the, the, I have to say, one of the things that rankled with me when I was young was a big question mark over the actual revolution itself, the, the, the idea of Irish independence. I used to often say to myself, well, if the British had never left here, I'd have probably been able to go to university. Now, that may sound a strange thing to say, and I didn't really become um, a proper Irish Republican uh, until I went to England, which was much later, and when I started to read James Connolly. So in, in my early youth, I was very interested in class politics, and I began to read Marx, and I began to read Connolly, and for me, the motor of human history, then and now, is the struggle of classes. Now, of course, uh, you know, the struggle of classes takes place within nations, and uh, I was later to know the historian uh, Desmond Graves and various other people in the communist movement, and I became convinced that the working class movement must champion the idea of national independence and self-determination. And I still see self-determination as a very important and progressive idea. 
Uh, and uh, I think if the British Labour movement and the Parliament had spent more time reading James Connolly and championed that cause, perhaps the Tories wouldn't have wouldn't have been able to rub the flag in the breakfast bake. Anyway, that's another story. Well, Mick, could you talk about that time when you moved to England? Because it's a very interesting part of your book, the connections that you made with people on the British left and also the Irish communities in those British industrial cities that you became a part of. Yeah, well, I think it's important just to, just to say that I tried to force join the Communist Party in Dublin. And I went into the bookshop. The Communist Party had a bookshop in Pierce Street, the end of Pierce Street. And I went into a man there called John Nolan, who actually had been involved in the campaign to bring Larkin back from America and was associated. He was a friend of young Jim Larkin, and he was very active in communist politics. And he, as I say, had been at this business from about 1923. And to get a picture of this guy, just imagine you're looking at uh, BBC Two, and it's Saturday night, and Captain Mannering is on because that's who he was. He was an absolute ringer for Captain Mannering. Did I said before that I think the BBC producer accidentally met him and invented Captain Mannering from his, his engagement with, with Johnny Nolan. But anyway, he was there in the bookshop, and I asked, could I join the Communist Party? And he looked at me and said, I don't know anything about them. Come to the wrong place kind of thing. He really put me off the idea altogether. But they wouldn't have been able to take me in anyway because they had no youth movement and you couldn't join the party until you were 18 years of age. But if he'd have said that to me, I would have accepted it. He denied all knowledge of the whole thing altogether. And it was, I knew he was telling me lies or putting me off and I was quite embarrassed. Anyway, I bought a book about the Daily Worker and I bought speeches of Harry Potter. I can remember the, the, the books that I bought. And I walked out to the door and he walked after me and he looked up almost addressing history rather than me and he said you know he said we've been accused of a lot of things and i wouldn't like to add kidnapping children to it and I was <laughs> absolutely to say i was furious at him is the understatement of the 20th century i killed him i really didn't like what he done by the way later we were to become Susan Pals. i got to know him and he was a font of information and knowledge and dedication and all that but that day was not a good day for me to be to be asked about you know. Anyway, I went to I there was a row in the in the factory and I had all kinds of difficulties in the Nolans. And uh, I left and uh, I went to uh, Britain and I went to Coventry. The first thing I'd done actually I went I went away with a, a pal of mine, deceased now, a great pal of mine called Bernard Town. The two of us went away together and uh, we joined us and went away in sixty five. And we joined the Communist Party of Britain. Just to give the picture of this at the time, there was about 40,000 members in the Communist Party at that time. Had a big intellectual tradition, had no members of parliament, a few councillors here and there. They had had two members of parliament in the, uh, up to the late 50s, I think. No, mid 50s. But their influence was enormous in the trade union movement, absolutely enormous. And they had a great tradition. So I joined the Coventry uh, branch of the party, which was very interesting because a lot of there was, there was a few Irish people in it. But the other thing it had was it had an intellectual tradition because a lot of the intellectuals from Warwick University used to attend the meeting. And that always fascinated me to 
the way intellectuals and workers would be together in the party arguing the topic. So there was no question of looking up to intellectuals. They were comrades as far as we were concerned. They shared our ideas and they worked for the cause of the of the party. So I, I, I joined the Communist Party and one of the most influential people over me at that time was a man called Harry Bourne. Now, I couldn't pronounce his first name. That's not his name. It's, he chopped it off because he was a Polish Jew and his name is as every letter in the alphabet. Uh, don't ask me to pronounce it, but he was known in the parties as Harry Bourne. And he had fought with the Free Poles in Britain with the British Army. And he had fought in the, uh, for the Republicans in Spain. And he was a fantastic character. He was a full-time organiser for the party. And I, you know, I've met a lot of people in, in the party who fought in Spain. And I have to say that every political cause on this earth has heroes. You know, the, the Nazis have heroes, and the Red Army has heroes, the Americans, the British, and the IRA, and the UDA, everybody's got heroes. And all these heroes have one thing in common. They all fought for their own place. But the 40-odd thousand volunteers who went to stand with the Republicans in Spain and fight Franco and the fascists, they were unique because they fought for somebody else's place. And I think they are uh, the, most, the most unique group in the history of any war, anywhere. I don't know any parallel uh, with the International Brigade anywhere. And I suppose most of them were communists, but not all of them, because they never described themselves as communists or socialists. They only described themselves as anti-fascists. And uh, it was, he, was, he was a fantastic character. And he made a big, big impact on me. Now I have to say, he was also a pea green hardliner Stalinist. Uh, he didn't like the, the, the modernization of the party. There was a big argument going on because at that time the daily paper was called the Daily Worker, nearly 50 years ago now. And they were talking about changing the name to the Morning Star. And there's a lot that went with that about adoption, about being more modern, and so on and so forth. And there was a to and fro of those kinds of politics. And it was the fallout of what had happened in the Soviet Union from the 20th Party Congress, the denunciation of Stalin, the idea of embracing and putting democracy at the centre of the struggle for socialism, as it always should be. So Harry was on the wrong side of that, the different side of it to, to me. But notwithstanding the fact that I disagreed with him over things, I still admired him. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I admired a lot of these people who I didn't agree with because I admired what they had done in the movement. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a kind of a person who is um, a kind of a heroic personality, I think, and people admire them for, for those qualities, I think. But um, my, my next question, though, Mick, you, you touched on there is like, uh, you know, you were part of a worldwide movement and, you know, the center of it was the Soviet Union. And you may, you may touched on there, you know, the Khrushchev era and the Thaw. And what was the thinking in, in, in world communism or in the communist movement at the time about, you know, what was the way forward for, for socialism? Well, I remember reading a pamphlet I think the title of it was 80 million communists say, or maybe 46 million communists say. It was a, it was a reflection of a meeting of the international communist movement. Now, I have to say, at that time, when I joined the party, there was no centre. It was not one movement. You know, each party had autonomy, etc., etc., to, 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 to go its own way towards socialism, to draw up its own programme, to reflect its own culture, its own history, its own background, all of that. That was very much the flow of things from the from the Soviet Union. There was also a big debate on culture because the Communist Party had 
uh, in the Soviet Union had interfered with culture, suppressed writers, uh, everything that Marx had said you shouldn't do, the Russians had kind of made every mistake in the loop, and everything wrong that you could do, they'd done it. And they'd done it, you know, in an abundance with Stalin. And obviously, many, many communists were mourning for their political views under the uh, Stalin regime. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an absolutely horrible thing to that anybody should lose their life as a result of having different political views to somebody else. And that happened in the Soviet Union on a gigantic scale. But the way I thought of that, I admired the fact that they opened a book on this and they, they said what they had done. After all, all the religions of the world have engaged in mass murder of their opponents over different interpretations of the Bible and so on and so forth. All the political parties, all the Western countries have, have all engaged in wars and colonial conquest and racism and all the rest. But the Soviets have opened the book on this and I thought that was a strength and not a weakness. Now, I have to say, I overestimated the degree to which the change had happened in the Soviet Union. So when I joined the Communist Party, the minority were the people who followed Stalin, the people who followed the Soviet Union, and the majority had turned their back on that. Well, Mick, we might move on to your return to Ireland and joining the Communist Party over here. And I think one of the things that people might find interesting is the Communist Party was partitioned along with the country. You had a separate Communist yeah. Party in the North and a separate Communist Party in the South. How did that work out in practice? Or did they have any differing views towards the national question, depending on whether you were in Dublin or Belfast? No, they had no, they had no different view on the national question. Of course, you know, the Communist Party during the war, during the Second World War, had grown to be quite a size in Belfast. Were, I don't know, there were probably about... 2,000 members in the Communist Party in Belfast during the, during the war years. Because the whole Soviet Union was working with Great Britain, you know, fighting fascism, fighting uh, Hitler, uh, and, and, the, and the war effort was, was supported by the trade union movement, by the Communist Party, by the left, by the Labour Party. There was, in effect, in Britain, in the British state at that time, what people now call war communism. In other words, everything was mobilized by the state for one thing, and that was the destruction of Nazi Germany. Uh, so the British state, the role of the state in industry, uh, in agriculture, in general culture of the country, in every state was involved in mobilizing the whole of the nation, and they were very much behind that. And so, you know, workers, particularly uh, unionist workers, were very much... Uh, inclined to listen to the propaganda of the of the party, and the main emphasis was on defeating Hitler. Now, the absolute opposite of the case was in the 26 counties, where Eamon de Valera, I think correctly, had um, argued that we would remain neutral during the war. And that's how the party really couldn't function down here with the level of censorship. So, as a result of that, remnants of the Communist Party here joined the Labour Party. And most of them, not all of them, but most of them were in the Dublin Central branch. And actually the two Larkins, Jim Larkin and the junior, and old Jim Larkin, the original Jim Larkin, were in that branch as well. And it's well known that the Communist Party 
run that branch of the Labour Party. A very, very dynamic organisation at that time, and uh, they campaigned on all the issues of the day. So it was after the war when there was a purge in the Labour Party, and the bishops insisted that they take certain things out of their constitution, like the idea of the Workers' Republic was taken out of the constitution of the Labour Party at the behest of the Irish bishops. Would you believe it? But that's actually what happened. And there was a purge against the communists, and many of them were expelled from the party, and they, they started the party again. The Irish Workers' League started in, I think, in 1947. And they immediately established a joint council with the party in Northern Ireland, the Communist Party of Northern Ireland. And that reunited in the in the 1971, I think. That was the background to that. They simply found that they couldn't function uh, really down here during the war years. But they always had the same analysis of the partition. They wanted to overcome partition. They wanted the British disengagement from the island of Ireland, and so on and so forth. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, unionists, those who represented unionist workers every day made that the central issue. If you were representing workers in, you know, in the shipyard or in Ireland and Wolf or, or, or wherever, obviously you have to adapt principles to the circumstances you find yourself in and you have to do fancy footwork and so on and so forth. But they always had a principal position on the national question. In the same way that the only party in Britain that campaigned ceaselessly against the partition of Ireland was the British Communist Party. Every other political party in Britain accepted the partition of Ireland. Well, Mick, I might ask you as well about your role in the Connolly Youth Movement and building up a, a youth movement for communism at that time. How did you find that? Did you find it was difficult or was were people receptive at that stage, young people looking for a, a left-wing alternative? Well, I didn't want to join the Connolly Youth Movement. I didn't believe it. I mean, this comes from, the communists are obsessed with the idea of youth movements. It comes from, I think, two or three sentences Lenin said in one of his pamphlets or books. About, you know, you have to get young people in. And um, I didn't want to join the communist movement until I was prevailed upon by the general secretary who put his arm on my shoulder one day and said, you know, the communist movement needs to make their joining. <laughs> That's the way the Communist Party worked. The General Secretary put his hand on their shoulder, Mick O'Reilly. He didn't say no to him. He suggested that I could do good work. So I joined the, I joined the Connolly Youth Movement. And I got, on, say, I got on fantastically well in it. I really enjoyed my time in it. Uh, I became involved in the um, Dublin House Election Committee and a host of kind of campaigns. We started a paper called Change and then with the second paper called Forward. Uh, we sold it around the pubs, which was, you know, quite a difficult thing to do in the in the early 60s. When you were selling the pub out of the early socialist or the youth paper, you were taking your life in your hands. Anything could happen to you selling the pub. You would, there was a tendency to get into a lot of rails because there was a lot of anti-communism about the place at that time. Oh, yeah, I was I was involved in the, on the youth movement, and, and I, I took to it, looked at the water, but I was reluctant uh, to join it. That's interesting you mentioned about the anti-communism, uh, Mick, that was prevalent at the time. Like that, you know, that's outside of the experience of the current generation. Can you just talk about what that was like or what people thought about communism generally? Well, I remember just after the Soviet intervention in Czechoslovakia, we had a big headline in the paper denouncing it. And uh, I was up in a pub uh, in Bally Farm called Tim Young's. I never forgot this. And it was packed. It was quite a night. I was selling the paper. I think the paper was forwards. And, uh, this guy said, no, I'll have one of them. And he said, uh, give me the form. So he said, give me the money. He dropped them. 
on the floor. One, two, three, four. On the floor. The pub was packed. So I did kind of get down on my knees, took up the four pence, and I was going out. And he then tore up the paper and used a lot of experience to me. I'm going to get out of the pub, you see. So I just walked out of the pub, you know. And as soon as I walked out of the pub, when I went outside, the barman, the head barman, said to me, you're an effing troublemaker. And never come into this pub again. Everywhere you go, he said, you communists, you just start trouble. <laughs> uh, and, and like, you know, that was, no, it wasn't that, that it, I wouldn't say it, the attention was like at all the time. But you could be, you could be, people would approach you and give out to you, you know, you know over, over that. Particularly if the Soviet Union had done anything wrong. As though you personally were. Or some way responsible for what the Red Army done in Czechoslovakia or, or whatever, yeah. even if you were denouncing it. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, back in the previous era, kind of in the 30s, there was like red baiting crowds. Like they tried to burn down, I think, uh, Connolly House. Yeah. 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 But that was another era, I think, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true. All right, I have another question, though, which is more about the, the 60s in Ireland. And, you know, people think about that now as kind of the Lamas Whitaker era. And, you know, times are changing for the better. And did you see that on the ground? Or what was your perception of that at the time? The exact opposite, because you see, there was a the big debate going on inside Fianna Fáil, and indeed in Irish society generally, about the future of protectionism. And Sean Lamas was very much of a position that they should move away from protectionism. But he actually said that business was too important to be left to business people, and that the state should play a role in developing companies that could be uh, used to export manufactured goods and so on and so forth. That was his position when they were in opposition. But when he got into office, and I think, and I, and I have no evidence for this, but this is what I think. I think Whittaker, G.J. Whittaker, convinced them that that was not the way to go. That the way to go was to bring in multinationals into Ireland, not use the state so much, and that these multinationals British companies would be forced to emulate them, would learn from them, and we would develop an indigenous kind of capitalist culture ourselves, and we would develop export industries ourselves. Now, that didn't happen. We certainly brought in multinationals, and they were relatively successful in the sense that they created jobs and so on and so forth. But our autonomy to do our own thing was not enhanced. So I worked, of course, in a protected industry, as thousands of people did. I worked in the car industry. People forget that we used to manufacture. Well, we didn't manufacture. We used to assemble cars in Ireland. And that was about, I think, 17, 18% of the manufacturing industry. And so we had a long campaign of opposition to both the Anglo-Irish Free Trade Agreement and to entry to the common market. But what we were able to do as car workers we were able to win a protocol. In other words, we went into a free trade agreement with the common market. We decided to join the common market. But the rules of the common market did not apply to car workers. What happened was we were protected until we joined the common market in 1972, and we got a protection agreement for the workers up until 1984. And every employer in the industry was charged if he wanted to bring in fully built cars, he was charged with responsibility of developing suitable alternative employment. And I tell you that that was a great achievement of the trade union movement. 
when we were talking about, as we are still, Exit and the British and all the rest of it, nobody was talking about how you do a transition. Because you can do a transition to a newer situation over time. And you can protect people if the goals are eventually got. Because we eventually got to a situation where there was no car industry. But a lot of us got alternative jobs in the process. And we didn't go to a cliff. We negotiated a way off the cliff. Uh, and I think that was a great achievement of the trade union movement, and uh, probably one of the best things that um, I and the shop steward uh, in the car industry were able to do. That's an interesting comment, Mick, about like the idea of growth, the, you know, European integration and stuff like that, versus kind of the autonomy to, to plan our own economy. That's a, it's a contradiction, as, as uh, Marxists might say, isn't it? Well, it's the exercise. Eamon de Valera was once asked about we voted in the referendum to join the common market, Fianna Fáil were in favour of it. And he said, in private, and Vivian, his son, told us that that meant he believed his father voted against it. And of course, he described himself as the last president of an Ireland that was free. And if you, if you read, particularly Frank Aiken and uh, De Valera, and indeed John Lamatt as well, time he changed his, his position on it. If you if you read them, they were very very sceptical about the whole idea of joining Europe. They certainly wanted a trade with Europe. They wanted freer trade, but they were more inclined to, to look at kind of a model of the Norwegians or the Swedes to have an associate kind of relationship with the common market. And the real reason that they went for full membership had nothing to do with the with the common market. It had everything to do with the decision of Edward Heath. And if you read the propaganda at the time, that's exactly what they said. We will have to go in if the British go in. Well, Mick, it's very interesting now, especially that we've all lived through the, the recent Brexit debates, yeah. that the way the media covers it, you'd assume that the only people who have questions or are sceptical about the EU are real reactionaries and right-wingers, that the whole left-wing argument, and particularly in Britain, like, you know, the the long tradition of questions about the EU coming from the left seems to have been completely excised from the debate. Well, the point is that they were. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think in the absence of Tony Penn, uh, because Tony Penn had a very clear uh, attitude to this. You see, this is, this is the point. Self-determination. Self-determination is a progressive idea. The idea that somebody can make a law, and if you don't like that law, you can ultimately sack them. The idea that if you want the state involved in your industries, or you want to go in the direction of a more socialistic, planned economy, then you have to have autonomy as a state to be able to do that. You can't do that in the common market. It is excluded by law. It's excluded by a constitution. Right? So... You, you don't have the freedom to do these things. And that's, that's I mean, it was, it was, this all arose. This is a, the common market was really constructed by the Americans uh, in their view after the Second World War. Because the only, the only powers in Europe after the Second World War were really the Americans and the Red Army. Germany was a busted flush, France was finished, Britain was exhausted, you know. So they were in the business of constructing something that would stand against sort of a socialist Europe or a more left-wing Europe. And they designed this common market thing very slowly. But the thing that excludes 
The thing that it absolutely excludes is the involvement of the state. The competition is in the actual constitution and you must have it and you can't interfere with it. By the way, the American constitution has no such prohibition. If, if Donald Trump tomorrow, uh, you know, uh, changed his mind and he wanted it to nationalize certain industries and all the rest of it, he could do so. There's nothing in the American constitution that prohibits him. But if, if somebody wanted to do that, if, some, if, if they decided to elect the left-wing government in France and they wanted to do that, they couldn't do it. It's prohibited by the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, you know, the counter-argument I've heard from trade unionists and left-wingers of that era who uh, spoken to me about it is that they were against the EEC as it then was at the time, but then they became converts to a thing called Social Europe in the 80s and 90s. Well, certainly do believe. I mean, once we made the decision to join, obviously, and you had to uh, reform Europe and, and do it in the... In the I, would, I would argue still that we, we need a more social Europe and we need to reform Europe. But the facts are, it's very difficult to see how you can do it. You have to get a majority in 27 countries. But each country can block uh, another. It's very, very, it's very hard to see how the European Union can be reformed. And I think, by the way, one of the ways that it will be reformed is when the British live. Because, I, I, you know, if the British get the deal I think they might get, then a lot of people will want a different point of Europe where, where there is more, you know, control at the, at the state. It, it amazes me that the debate now in, in Europe, one of the things the Europeans want to stop is the British using the state. The British, you know, they created Thatcherism, the destruction of the state. But the British want to be able to use the state, a conservative administration. Uh, it's, it's just it's absolutely amazing. And the reason the British want to keep that there, as far as I can see, uh, is the fact that they, um, it's about their sovereignty. They want to be able to make these decisions. Well, Mick, I think we might move on now to um, your time in the Labour Party, which is very interesting. How that move came about from you leaving the Communist Party and entering the left of the Labour Party. A big group of us, I'd say a big group of us, about 40 people, I think, 40 odd people, 40 people left the Communist Party over the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Now, not when it happened, because when it happened, it was denounced and, you know, that was accepted and we put it through. But there was a long point of battle over the consequences of that inside the Communist Party. And we lost out. They eventually um, accepted the Soviet invasion was done for good reasons and that they had you know, prevailed and, and, and stopped Czechoslovakia moving away from socialism. That's something we could not and would never uh, accept. So I left the Communist Party. Where, where are the others? Now, most of the others joined the Labour Party. I didn't. Now, it coincided with the fact that I had taken a full-time employment in the union. I moved uh, to Dundalk as a full-time official. And uh, I, was, I was very busy in the union, to tell you the truth. Uh, I had a branch of about 2,500 people. I had 90 sections to look after, and I was, I, was, I was very busy. And as I say, they all joined the Labour Party, but I didn't. Until there was a row in the Labour Party, we were represented by a union official, uh, Jimmy Tinkler, and there was a, a row over coalition, as there always is in the Labour Party. But they had a, a row, and I think it was Michael O'Leary wanted to fight the election on a joint programme with Fine Gael. And that was a step too far for many, many people on the left. Even people who would go along with a coalition with Fine Gael afterwards, but they didn't want to fight on a common programme. They wanted the Labour Party to fight on their programme and then use their programme to negotiate afterwards. Anyway, that was the concept of the debate that went on. And um, 
Jimmy Sinclair had gone a different way. He, he supported uh, Michael O'Leary. And I started a row in the union over this. And um, as a result of that, Manny Merrigan said to me, well, Nick, you know, it's not enough to be giving out about what other people do. If you're going to be talking about the Labour Party and giving out about the Labour Party, you better bloody well join it. So I did. I joined the Labour Party and I was on the executive of the, uh, I was elected to the executive of the fourth conference. In fact, I remember questioning myself, can this be a serious organisation? I'm two and a half minutes in and I'm already on the executive. I was not impressed by the fact that that wouldn't happen to you in the Communist Party. It was much, much smaller. But nevertheless, you'd have to save some kind of an apprenticeship. But anyway, I went to my first conference, literally, I was three months in the Labour Party, and I found myself in the middle of this huge debate about uh, coalition and all the rest of it. And we established a co-op called the Labour Left Co-op. We produced a magazine, and we challenged the direction of the Labour Party in relation to coalition in particular, particularly the coalition at that time. It was very, very... Um, right wing. Now, you know, a lot of people think Gareth Fitzgerald was a left-wing kind of a guy or a progressive sort of person. I don't, that's not a view I share. And I'm opposed to Fine Gael. I would have even argued that it would be much better if Labour had even been in coalition with Fianna Fáil. I eventually supported that kind of an outcome. But anyway, the, the Labour Party was full of arguments and factions and it was a completely new kind of situation for me. You could be in the Labour Party and have any kind of a view that you wanted and argue it out. It was, it was open and there were huge differences between people. That's very different from a Communist Party, which is very focused on what it has to do um, after it has a debate. It turns around and it tries to, to, to carry out. Is that a, an advantage or a disadvantage, in your opinion, Mick, for a party to have such free debate? I think it's an absolute advantage for a party to have as much debate as possible. But I think when the debate is finished, uh, you have to set about, you know, making sure the debate reflects itself in unity and in taking the party forward. The problem with, with, the, with the Labour Party debates were that they, they, we usually lost uh, and they come out in favour of coalition. And the problem there was a minority in the Labour Party, which was if you kept up you know, the idea of supporting the coalition, it would eventually lead to a situation that would destroy the Labour Party because it would lose its whole compass about what it was about. It's all right, maybe, in an, in an extreme crisis now and again to go into a, a situation of power with people who are totally, have a totally different view from you because of some national crisis. But it's quite another thing to make it, you know, uh, to make yourself part of the status quo forever. And that's essentially what they were doing. And it was a lot of it was about office rather than power to do things. They didn't achieve an awful lot of income. Well, Mick, one of the things that runs throughout your book is your relationship with Mick O'Reardon and your friendship too. Could you talk about that, please? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, it was a big friendship actually, but it, it, it wasn't a friendship that we agreed on things. I mean, I, I am, it's very hard. I am somebody who is totally opposed to the ideas of Mick in terms of his devotion to the Soviet Union and all of that. That is not the kind of communism I was ever interested in whatsoever. I, I, I don't think that was In fact, my view is if we had a created a, a, if one of the communist parties, one of the big communist parties in France or Italy had come to power, that would have been great for the Soviet Union because it would have, Help them to give them the confidence to dismantle 
some of the military machine that they have and spend it looking after their own people. They have to put an awful lot of resources uh, into military stuff, which, you know, in, in some ways crippled what they were trying to do. But I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't the greatest murderer of the Soviet Union. But anyway, Mick was. That, that's another area. The fact is, Mick O'Reilly was a tremendous internationalist. He was a tremendous, he was a great Irish Republican. I would argue that he was a great Irish patriot. And um, you just, like, I, I just, I, you know, he'd done so much for me. But I, as I say, I didn't always uh, agree with him. In fact, I hardly ever agreed with him on anything. But we were great friends because he was somebody I admired. I admired him because, I mean, he retired from the movement and spent a lifetime in it. And he wouldn't have had two beds of grass to put together. But, uh, you know, he was a man you didn't meet every day. If you met him, you knew you met him. If he had a point of view, he'd stick with it. He wouldn't abandon any post because it was difficult. He got a commendation from the International Brigade over his role in Spain. And I, I think it reads something like this. I'm talking from memory now. He is usually the first into any battle. He's usually the last to live. His small submachine gun is equal to 14 fascists. Now, I don't think they gave loads of them help. So that was, that was, that was the Mick O'Reilly I knew. And as I said, uh, I had great time for him. I liked him. I respected him. But as I said, I did not agree with the kind of world he, he, I think he wanted to create here. But on the other hand, he was solid on the national question when a lot of people were not. He believed in the, the British disengagement from this island. He was a friend of Irish Republicans when it was very difficult to be to be their friend. He supported the Adams leadership, I think, in Sinn Féin, and he thought that it would create the right kind of set of circumstances. And on most everything else, the patterns of, you know, most things in relation to Ireland, me and Mick would have had an agreement, you know. But I remember saying to him one day, I actually thought he was going to hit me, he was trying to change my mind on the invasion of Czechoslovakia, and he was, I was unemployed at the time, and he used to he used to buy me four points of stout and give me my bus fare. I had absolutely no money. He used to have 38 shillings a week on the uh, assistance, and my rent was 18 shillings. You can you can figure out the rest. This was not an easy period of my life. Uh, anyway, I was I was working for Nick. He was talking to me about Lenin and revisionism, talking to me all day long, and it was like white noise in my ear, the pain, of me. and I finally got fed up with. And we were walking down Maribel Lane, and uh, I said to him, do you think all that's right? He said, yes, I do. And I said, well, I don't. And I said, if you do, why don't you do a pamphlet for yourself, I said, and say that you were a bricklayer on the Berlin Wall and was tanked the driver in Hungary. And see how that goes down in Falama Mansions. Well, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I looked at his face. I thought he was going to flat me. Like, Mick was a big man he was, in every way. Anyway, I got that right and I stood down off the path to make myself smaller, right? And uh, anyway, we walked down to Catherine's church and usually we go, we go in for a four points and he just turned on his heel and said, good night. <laughs> anyway, the next morning I met him and it was all gone. The, it was, how are you making? And the next night I done my bit and we had our four points. So that's the kind of guy he was. He'd argue with you quickly, but he would he would forget about it. And he would, you know, there was no. I never found him to be narrow-minded or or anything like that. And I tell you something else: when I was stacked in the union, 
Mick was a great supporter of mine. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, he, he had contacts in Britain to help me get the job as, a, as the regional secretary of the Transport Union, which was a, a big, very difficult job for me to get. And Mick was, uh, you know, he was a, he was a supporter uh, of mine. Even though he was sacked, he was one of the people who, who uh, supported me. I remember being in Fleet Street outside the bookshop, and I got a phone call uh, on my mobiles telling me that the full-time officers in the union had voted by 70% to go on strike and support me and Eugene McBone. Now, just think about what that means. That is like... Union officials going on strike is it just doesn't happen. You know, it'd be it would be like people said, Well, you know, we're ten years now and we're not gonna service our constituents. We're full time officials and we're not gonna look after our members. I mean other unions would just take all your members. It was a huge, huge thing that I drove. And Mick O'Reilly called me over and I said, I'm not getting word to the officers. And he said, You will be back. Morris, he said, is dead. He said, it's like the Cardinals voting against the Pope. Nobody can stand that, Mickey said. You'll get your job back. And he was right. Yeah, you've mentioned that, you know, the controversy with you and the ATGW, Mick. We're going to get on to that in a second. I've just have one more quick question about, like, Irish politics of, of, of that era. Like, you mentioned that you joined the Labour Party after the Communist Party, and Mick O'Reardon obviously stayed with the Communist Party. There was another outgrowth on the Irish left at the time, which was the Workers' Party. Were, were you ever tempted to join them? No. Okay. <laughs> I told you, I learned about my Republicanism late. But when I came to it, I believed it. I believe in the independence of Ireland. I believe that we should control our own destinies. And I believe in a disengagement from the British state, from all things Irish. The official Republican movement didn't agree with that. They abandoned it. And I think they've done themselves a great disservice because of it. But anyway, that's all. I mean, the main thing you were involved in, Mick, was the trade union movement. And I think the 80s was the highest proportion of Irish workers in trade unions, wasn't it? Yes. Very good. When did it start to decline? It declined for many reasons. There's not one reason. Part of it is the changing nature of work. You know, what you might call the collapse of the three M's. That's male, manual, manufacturing. That has, you know, made a big impact. The collapse of that kind of work has made a big impact on the trade union movement culturally and, and every other way. That's one part of it. The other part of it, I would argue, is this. I was getting involved in kind of national wage agreements. Where we got involved and we had a three-year agreement and everything came down from the top. And so we had this huge movement, you know, involving maybe more than half a million people, probably thousands of shop stewards and officials and all the rest of it. And they nothing to do. All they do is place these agreements and make sure that they're carried out. That's, that makes sense if you're in the public sector, but it doesn't make any sense if you're in the private sector. And I am firmly of the view free collective bargaining. In other words, meeting your own employer, figuring out your own company, making your demands on the employer, and looking after your own members and involving them democratically in the discussion about where we go and what we do and all the rest of it. That's what trade unionism is. And if you have this big wet blanket on the movement 
and, and it lies over for you know 20 years and all your muscles atrophy you don't use them so that's also part of the trade union and when they got a wallop they did uh, as a result of the of the economic crisis they were very very badly injured because a lot of their muscle power their capacity to fight was gone from them. And I remember in the trade union movement when we got rid of wars, like when we stopped calling one another comrade, when we stopped talking about class politics, when we started talking about everything being right. I'll tell you this, the employers have never stopped talking about class politics. I mean, as far as they're concerned, they have a quite simple attitude. They're in the business of making money out of our members. And uh, if we want to support them in doing that, hey, that's great. But if, if we don't, they'll fight us. But if we don't, if we don't learn to stand up for our members and become fighting back trade unions, what's the point of trade unionism? We're not there as a prop for the status quo, as a prop for the state. Our job is to look after our members. Our job is to look after our members independently of what the state wants or what political parties want. We have to listen to our members. And we haven't been doing that, I'm afraid. And, you know, there's a lot of problems in the trade union movement. But I mean, at the end of the day, the trade union movement is still one of the biggest organizations in this country. And people should join it. They should fight for change in it. And it, 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 there'll be no change in Ireland without changes in the trade union movement and the involvement of the trade union movement. Well, Mick, I might ask you about the ATGWU. And there might be some people who wouldn't be aware that this is a British-based union and the different history involves of unions with a headquarters in Britain remaining active within Ireland and the Irish trade union movement. Could you speak about that, please? Well, first of all, the unions that made up the ATGW were active in Ireland um, right through the, you know, many of them before the state was founded. So when the state was founded, they didn't, cut off their connections with Britain, so to speak. They just remained in operation. And remember, the biggest union which broke away from Britain was the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. And it didn't break away because of the War of Independence. It broke away because Larkin uh, had a row and it wouldn't give him the autonomy that he wanted to be able to fight. So it make the Irish Transport a more fighting back union that responded quicker to the needs of the Irish membership. It wasn't in that sense a, a political construct in the beginning. Obviously, it was influenced hugely by the Connolly's involvement in 1916 and all of that. But the union that I was in, and I should just say that I wasn't originally in the Transport and General Workers Union. I was in a union called the National Union of Vehicle Builders when we merged with the Transport Union in the early 70s. It would be the biggest Britain, uh, union uh, in Britain and the second biggest union in Ireland. Two-thirds of its members were in the, in the north of Ireland in six counties and one toward down there. But it was a very, very militant left-wing union. Now, it wasn't always like that. You know, there was a period in the 50s when the, the transport union was a, a very anti-communist union. Its leader, Arthur Deacon, actually banned the communists from holding office. Many of them lost their jobs because you couldn't be a full-time official in the union or represent the members. The Cold War operation, the same operated in, in the Irish unions, not by rule, but by culture. There was a very, very uh, big attack on communists in the trade union movement, particularly when it was it was dying out when we joined it, but it was still there. You know, it was still there. There was a, a fierce, a fierce mistrust of communism. And ultimately people thought you were working for a, a foreign state rather than you were part of the because I always seen 
the ideas of Larkin and Connolly are not important to me. They're part of Irish culture. But for other people, because of their association with the Soviet Union, or with the, the way it got looked at, the involvement of Marxism in Irish culture became obscured and totally associated with, as I say, the Soviet Union. The right. Transport and General Workers Union operated there, and I joined it. It was a very left-wing union, and I really liked its culture. It had a very robust internal culture. It was very democratic, very much based on rank and file trade unionism, and a very political union. And I got the job in the Transport Union in 1978. The General Secretary, no, he, he actually kind of left the, the, the year I got the job. I never really walked alongside him, but I knew him. Uh, the General Secretary was a man called James Larkin Jones, known in Britain as Jack Jones. The reason is uh, name, he got the name Larkin was his father was involved in the 1913 strike in Liverpool and was responsible for collecting a lot of money for the people here uh, who were on the strike. And of course, Jack Jones was born in 1913. So, Mick, you've alluded already to your, your split with the ATGW and that Bill Morris, who was the head of the union, suspended you. That was really in the context of this social partnership idea that you were talking about a few minutes ago, wasn't it? No, it wasn't really. I was involved with controversy here with, with the social partnership with the Irish Brothers. Morris might have liked some of the things I was doing in relation to social partnership. I don't know. No, it was for a lot of... It was for, it was for a whole number of reasons. I mean, culturally, he probably didn't like the way I, I run the region from a very much a rank and file perspective. I try to involve people um, in the union in ways that maybe, maybe he didn't like. The truth of it is this, I don't really know, because he never really had a proper kind of argument with me. I, I, I believe, you know, if somebody's doing something wrong in the union, you should go over and have a row with them and point out this or the other. Nothing like that ever happened to me. This came at me from the out of the blue, you know, and I have to tell you, you know, it's not a union that likely sacks people. So he sacked me and he sacked Eugene McGlone. And um, yeah, there was a, there was certainly, there was a, there was a, a lot of stuff circulating here. And journalists have told me that people from the Irish Trade Union movement were involved in talking to him and that about my role. But I have no evidence that that was the case. I genuinely haven't, you know. Certainly, I was having arguments with them over wage agreements and, um, I was making the weather on the on the wage agreements all over the place, and I think I was making good arguments. But I mean, they they were uh, happy with that. But that's you know not my job to make them happy. It's my job to look after my members. Well, Mick, reading through the book, I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for yourself to have this hanging over you for such a long time, and also, I suppose, the perception that people would have that if a trade union official is suspended there must be some financial impropriety or they must have done something very, very bad to warrant this. Well, in a country awash with tribunals, <laughs> read Jane Kerrigan's introduction. I mean, the fact that an interview was done on RTE, perfectly legitimate interview, and the journalist concerned said to the question, was there an audit? Will there be an audit? An audit is a great word. Uh, and on morning Ireland, of course, the answer was yes. Everything is going to be audited, but you really audit money. And I think a lot of people said, oh, well, you know, Mick might be a nice guy, but he obviously had his hand in the cookie jar and so on and so forth. And that just lay there. It just lay there over us for a period of months. 
and it was very difficult because you see we were banned from speaking we were told we could not speak to any person or thing that the union had an association with any person or thing that's a big <laughs> that's a big it's a small few words but it has a big meaning and that, that letter was handed to me in Belfast. And I have to say, I was dumbfounded by it. It was like getting two battles of a gun and my head blown off. I'd just come back from holidays. And uh, it was really shocking. But I, I had, it was very difficult for me because if some employer or some in some dispute that had happened to me, I, that wouldn't have bothered me, you know, getting knocked down and, it was the idea that I'd have to fight the union. I couldn't get it into me head that I'd have to fight this union. I don't want to sound um, bloppy about it. <laughs> I love the union. I really do. And it was very, very difficult for me to get that into me head. And I went back and I, I remember I read Reeves' book on James Connolly. Within days, really, of this happened to me. And uh, he says somewhere in the book that you commit yourself twice if you're a real revolutionary to change. Well, this was my second time to commit myself because I needed to kind of refuel and ask myself the question, what was my life all about? What was this all about? And I concluded that I wasn't actually attacking the union. I was helping to save it. I was attacking people who had lost their way in the union. And I think Bill Morris lost his way in the union. And if you doubt that, just just imagine where he is now. <laughs> He's in the House of Lords. Yeah, maybe it's unfair. Yeah, maybe it's an unfair thing to bring up for Bill Morris. But I mean, you know, many people would have been aware in the nineties of the Liverpool Dockers dispute, and he, you yes. know, he, he was he certainly appeared unsympathetic then to the to the Dockers. Oh, he did, and, and I I campaigned with the Dockers, which you know. Probably didn't do me any good in the union. Anyway, that's not here there. Uh, I campaigned with the Dockers and I supported them. I collected a lot of money for them. And uh, I helped them stop a couple of boats down here and was involved uh, with them. And I remember within three days of being elected as regional secretary, which was a huge shock because Morris didn't want me as regional secretary. No doubt about that. And uh, uh, he, he always was able to pick. See, you have to understand the transport union the regional secretaries are, are a power base in the union. They are the most important, powerful people in the union, alongside the general secretary. It's a spare kind of power. It's always been like that. And the Irish region is, you know, a fairly autonomous thing, and he certainly didn't want me in it. And I don't know why. He probably would have been a bit dubious about my republicanism, because I had, you know, campaigned in Britain for a British disengagement from Ireland. I'd spoken on platforms with Benedict Evelyn and Ken Livingston and Tony Ben and what have you. So, you know, he, he might he mightn't have been happy uh, about that kind of thing. And a number of our members wouldn't have been happy over it as well. We have a unionist membership. But you have to, you know, sometimes you have to state what your politics are and and, and, and that's that. And I never apologize for the fact that I'm an Irish Republican. I, I don't shy away from campaigning uh, for my Republican views. So, you know, there was there was, there was all of that. And, and as, as I say, I, I was elected on the executive, I think it was 18 votes to 12, which is huge when the general secretary is campaigning against you. It's huge. 
So I mostly monoscopic. So that was that was the that was the background um, to all of that. And you know, we just didn't we just didn't see the uh, see eye to eye. Although I do remember actually talking to him one, one time, and, and uh, he, he he come back to me and said, you know, he said I was at a I was at a Sinn Féin, a friend of Sinn Féin meeting in London. He said, and I met this fellow, Martin McGuinness. He said, he's the most charming individual I've ever met in my life. I, I, must have, I must have made some beginning, made some inroads in them. But I don't know what happened in London, why they turned on me the way they did. There are a hundred and one theories about it. Frankly, I'll probably never know. Well, ultimately, Mick, you, you were vindicated. And, uh... oh, completely. Yeah. Completely. John Henry done done a report on it, uh, and uh, he, you know, he fairly well lays out uh, what happened. But like that took nearly three and a half years. Yeah, it's dreadful to think that the uh, the amount of stress and worry uh, and the unnecessary nature of the whole thing. Mm. That's true, but the, you know these things happen when the brothers fall out. It's just the worst of all times <laughs> because mm. the brothers are not supposed to fall out. If you, look at, if you look at, you know, what, what are the worst kind of wars? They're civil wars. Uh, and the worst kind of things that happen, they usually happen in one union, one to another. They don't happen very often, but when they happen, they are awful. Uh, and it was an awful period, there's no doubt. And I'm, I'm sad about it because it diminished everybody. It diminished everybody, but it diminished the union. And I think, without wanting to sound cocky about the fact that I won and got was reinstated, I think it diminished Bill Morris as well. I think it done him a lot of harm. Um, you know, because when he left, it wasn't a big turnout at his party, and a lot of people who had campaigned for him, as indeed I did in the fourth election, you know, felt very let down by him. But anyway, these things, once you start on a road like that, they get legs. And I, I venture to say, in the trade union movement, historically, if you look at people who are being sacked, they never get back. You usually get a big bag of money. I told him to go away and shut up. <laughs> but I got back, and I think, and Eugene got back, and I think that's unique. Now, I'm not a Labour historian, though I do dabble a bit in history. I've never come across a row so big that, that uh, you know, we, we, we were able to turn it around. Because it's one of the biggest unions in the world. What's your thoughts on the future of trade unionism and left-wing politics in Ireland today? Well, obviously, on the question of politics, obviously, the left need to cooperate and develop, work together and put a formula together for a, a progressive uh, alternative government. And that must involve Sinn Féin, who are the biggest party now on the left, and it must also involve the independent people and probably the remnants of Labour, the Social Democrats, and even the Greens, dare I say it, even though it doesn't look like they in anything now. And that's the kind of a coalition we have to put together with the support of the trade union movement. And that's, I think, the future of the left. The future of the trade union movement, they need to reach out to the workers in the new industries. They need to learn to listen to them. They need to find out where the shoe is tight for them, get them involved in the trade union movement and recruit, recruit, recruit. That's the future of trade unionism as far as I'm concerned. Well, Mick, thank you very much. We really appreciate having you on the show today. If anyone would like to get Mick's book, it's called From Lucifer to Lazarus, A Life on the Left, and it's available by Lilliput Press. And I'm sure you can get it now in most good bookshops and also order it online. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show 
on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on. It really does help us. So don't forget, you can listen back to all the previous episodes of the show on irishhistoryshow.ie. So on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-presenter, John Dorney from theirishstory.com, until next time, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.